First of all, I want to thank uh, Kathleen and I want to thank Katie and Katie uh, for inviting us all here today. I want to first introduce uh, Kristen and I just found out something right now talking to you. Uh, I've been going to her uh, original restaurant, which has been young mm-hmm. for the last uh, I, maybe 20 years of my life. And I go there by myself to eat <laughs> duck blood, tikan, <laughs> right? Because wow. I, I love that stuff. Uh-huh. And titye and, you know, all of the, the good stuff. Um, so you originally started from that. And today you are here with garlic and chives. So right. this is Kristen. Can we give it up for Kristen? Thank you. Dada and I, uh, we go back way before Dada opened Pre-BC. up the boiling, yeah. pre uh, boiling crab. Uh, we were friends, I think, probably right out of college yeah. for both of us. Yeah, yeah we met uh, in LA, and there was a group of friends that had introduced us. Dada is the founder of the boiling crab, and thank you for being here today. Thank you. So, why don't we start with you, Kristen? Briefly, tell us how you got started. When I was in my 20s, um, I got my business degree, but my parents opened a small mom-and-pop shop um, in Westminster. It's been 30 years now. So I helped my parents run that business for 30 years. I'm the main chef there, and I'm still a chef there, but it's a family business. So, um, And then I got married after two years after that, and then I have my two kids, um, and Ashley is in here in the meeting here today. So, um, you know, I was a stay-at-home mom for 15 years about that. But during when my kids were little, so I went to, I went to culinary school. Uh, I want to pursue the cooking skills and, uh, ta- and knowledge. So I went to culinary school, and I traveled all over the world just to learn uh, from different master chefs, so that's why my cuisine is uh, very diverse with like Southeast Asia. So um, I think knowledge is power. So uh, definitely, um, you know, I'm still learning as well. So thank you, Dada. Wow. Um, so my story is quite different. Uh, I went to school, um, graduated from the University of Kansas. I'm actually a Kansas City girl. Go Chiefs. Um, but I, with all the other, probably you youngsters out there understand, I was pre-pharmacy, switched over to women's studies, um, graduated, uh, became a recruiter, had always worked in the restaurant industry, met my husband, um, my last year of college on a road trip. He was a crabber, came from a family of fishermen, um, stayed in touch, dated over 10 years, moved to California, um, and found that you know, as I dated him, he had introduced me to the crab boils and um, crawfish boils and whatnot uh, from his influences because he came from a long line of um, fishermen in his family. So having moved to California, craving the flavors and the food, and every time he would come visit, he'd bring, you know, a bag of live crawfish. And one day thought, how cool would it be if we could just open up a restaurant where we wouldn't have to go through all this? I could go in and order a few pounds, 
enjoy it with a group of friends, have a cold beer. And that's kind of how it started. So in 2004, we opened up. um, We were supposed to get married. We decided to take all our savings from that and open the restaurant first. Um, And so we opened the first Boiling Crab in Garden Grove in 2004 in April. So this April, we'll turn 20 years old. Wow. Yeah. So thank you, Garden Grove. Yeah. You know, before we get to, like, the good memories, can you go back and think about the early days or the bad memories, like some early bad stuff that happened? And I and I ask this because oftentimes we leave that out of the narrative, right? But that's really the most important part of growth is these bad early. So either one of you, if you can answer, what were like the bad early memories that you had? Well, I think the courage is very tough. Uh, to get the courage to do it, and a lot of um, uncertainty, um, and capital is the big thing. Uh, you have to have money for everything, um, and uh, sacrifices uh, of your time. Uh, no time for our family, for anything, and so uh, I think that's very painful that we have to go through the first few years just to get it over that hurdle. And once you get there, then everything's all nice. (laughs) (laughs) I think for me it was um, the memories that stick out to me were just starting out the business. I mean, Mm -hmm. funding was one thing. Fortunately, we couldn't do the SBA. Like a lot of – we just kept getting denied. Um, Our business proposal – Nobody knew what we were trying to do. A lot of people didn't even know what crawfish was um, and, or what a boil was. Uh, what stands out for me is, like, the beer license. And I think that's where, like, the city of Garden Grove kind of came together for me. I met a lot of people through that process who really kind of rallied. And I remember going door to door. And it was just really felt really grassroots. And really, you know, back in 2004, there were so many issues. Um, even within the neighborhoods, people didn't know if we were going to be another Guangyao place that was going to attract, you know, late night activity um, and, you know, drunk you know, patrons, and that's not what we were about. So, you know, having to prove that and go to the city council and doing all sorts of things for me is what stood out. Um, and what's kind of been a theme I'm realizing is, you know, our targeted grand opening date, which like is hilarious because it's always a moving date and I'm still experiencing it now um, because it's, you know, through permitting and building and construction and hiring and all the other things that go along with, with, uh, opening a, a, a business was what stands that we were like nine months delayed. And so we were like nine months deep into like rent and this and that. And so those are what really, like we look back and we can laugh about it. Or remember when we opened and we didn't have beer and it was BYOB and, you know, those who know, you know, you know, um, but, you know, good times. Cause I think, you know, what makes, what, what challenges, they always make you stronger in the end. Yeah. So. This episode is brought to you by Red Boat Fish Sauce. I love cooking with Red Boat because it's made with only two ingredients, wild-caught anchovies and sea salt. This premium fish sauce is made in Fukuok, Vietnam and bottled right here in California. You can find Red Boat at select Asian supermarkets like 99 Ranch, H Mart, and Tong Fak. Mm-hmm. Funding seems to be uh, a recurring thing, but before we get to funding, I'd actually like to talk about this idea of two front-facing strong women having to work in the Vietnamese community, yeah. <laughs> right? 
But I'm sure as, you know, I've had experience recently working with uh, some people in this uh, audience, Linda and Jacqueline, <laughs> that male uh, Asian Vietnamese men are, are difficult to, to, to work with. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I'll just call it like it is. You said it. <laughs> I said it. I can't yeah, say it. Yes, yes. What, what kind of difficulties uh, did you face as women in business? And this is for the young women in our community. I would love to hear sort of the, the experience that you had to, to go through in the early days. You can go first. <laughs> I might not stop talking. You know? <laughs> like, no. Um, no, I think for, for me, it's, I mean, business aside, just being a, I mean, I grew up in Kansas and we were practically the only Asian family, you know, at my school. There were others, but they were adopted or whatnot. So for me, and I'm also different from Chris and I'm one of three and I'm the youngest and I'm the only girl. So I think I've just grown up in that, you know, environment to always kind of stand firm. And I was always kind of a fighter. I was feisty and, you know, I'm tenacious and that and the other. But so I think it was always in me to always kind of like in that survival mode, but also being like, you know, a child of immigrants who came and seeing my parents work and seeing them, you know, through all that grit and stuff. Business has been a different, obviously, it's a whole nother thing. Because everybody wants to tell you, but not just men, women too, what to do. Uh, more so men, because obviously it was male dominated. Um, I mean, every landlord I've dealt with has been male. You know, um, all the contractors are male. You know, all the people at the city that I dealt with predominantly in the beginning were male. So um, it was, I think, in some ways, it, it, it you know, there were definitely challenges, but it was, it kind of helped too, because it helped to just, massage people a little bit I think they were not used to like dealing with females so in some ways that kind of helped but when it comes to somebody telling you what they know or trying to advise I think that was very different because they always made you feel like you didn't know what you were doing you know um, and I think being in business for anybody male or female you just kind of have to really have a clear vision and know what you're doing um, but I think you just learn to be louder I think as a female mm. you know, True. So. yeah yes. that's why I can't be partners with any with my husband or my family. So I'm on my own, which I love. So I make my own decisions. Um, so I think the best part is uh, that I can make my own decision. Uh, that's so important to me. Um, so that's why I start the restaurant small, uh, whatever I can afford, small, and then slowly, gradually, I improve myself. So um, 10 years ago, I opened the garlic and chives um, when my kids are a little older. Um, and then five years later, I opened the Artesia, and then now I'm, I'm on my third one. So we, I'm gradually, um, you know, growing. But uh, I love it because I don't have to explain to anybody. <laughs> in, the, in the early days, when you're trying to get all this capital together, all this funding together, mm -hmm. how do you go about it? How do you have the faith to go out and raise this money and put all that money on the line to gamble in businesses, the restaurant business we know has a huge attrition and fail rate. Well, um, that's why uh, be smart. Um, don't overspend uh, all the capital that you have. Um, I just, just the, the, I think the art of negotiating power is also very important. So, 
you know, my first restaurant, they listed for 300000 or 400000 I don't remember. I offer one twenty, and I say, take it or leave it. So um, they gave me, uh, it took them three months to digest that amount. And I said, okay, so they finally accepted. And so that's all I have. And so I opened just that much. But uh, definitely, you know, and also um, I'm on my third, I use all my own fundings which is uh, crazy. Uh, I didn't know. Uh, so my third restaurant, I met a banker, and he says, you should not use your own funding. So, <laughs> so after third, uh, the third restaurant, so he says, um, you know, best is to get a business loan. So I, I still, up to this day, I haven't uh, gotten into that. But that's also an option where you can get the business loan. And, you know, I think um, the bank is totally behind you if you have a, you know, great vision. Our, we're, we're so different, Kristen. It's so funny. <laughs> so I, I co-founded The Boiling Crowd with my husband, and we actually work really well together. I think it's First off, you just got to know your strengths and weaknesses, and I cannot cook. I think I break every, you know, stereotype of an Asian female because I don't cook. I'm really bad at math, and I'm a great driver, you know? So, like, I, you know, it's funny, but I, I love that he took care of the back. I could take care of the front because that, that was my strength, and that's what I know is relationships and hiring and training and, and that and the other in service. But in terms of funding, we – as I had said previously, we had saved up money. We thought we were going to get married before we were like, let's do this business. And we were like, you know what? If we get married and we blow this money, we don't know when we're going to be able to do this business. So we took the money that we saved, which wasn't a lot, but we maxed out credit cards. We borrowed a few from here and there who was willing to kind of believe in us because nobody knew, again, what the heck we were doing. Um, and we just threw it, you know, at the wall. And we found the smallest hole in the wall in Garden Grove in a plaza mm -hmm. with the landlord that was like, I don't really know what this concept is, but I like you guys. You're young. And sure, why not? You know, um, and that's kind of how it started. So funding has changed, though, over the years, obviously. I mean, I think our first store was maybe 1450 square feet. And honestly, I think it cost us about 100 grand to open back in 2004. Today, our uh, stores uh, cost probably about 1.2 to 1.5 to open. Um, just, I mean, obviously, times have changed, but so has equipment and, you know, the process and things like that and the other. So I will say that we continue to be self-funded, which is good and bad. Bankers, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's, it's good and bad because everyone's, it's, it's not mm -hmm. traditional. Um, a lot of people would you know, get that capital elsewhere. But we found, you know, we lose some control when we do that. And I guess coming again culturally from like our background and um, being, you know, a first generation immigrants, it's like you don't really want to owe anybody. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, and my, my husband having been a fisherman and dealing with cash and things like that, um, you were just not used to like getting loans. And so we've been fortunate to be self-funded, but it's bad because growth means it's slower, you know, obviously, because, I mean, there's a lot more at risk, um, but we've enjoyed it, and so far, so good. Um, we still debate about going, you know, capital versus um, self-funding, and I don't know, I, 
we'll see what happens. But we we get you know poked all the time, you know, for with investors and whatnot. And you know, some some of them are really quite appealing um, and tempting. But for the most part, if our philosophy has been, if we can do it ourselves, let's just continue to do it um, and let's just write it out. So it's also nice to be conservative. So that's a、yeah. safe way. So yeah. So here's an issue. You both are saying that if anybody who's young in the audience today or listening, and they want to get started, the capital or the barrier to entry is so high. So how do young people or people with a dream, not even young, somebody in their thirties, how do they break into this sort of business if they love food, they love business, and they have a dream? What do you suggest for them today? I, my suggestion would be to start small and not to like be overly ambitious. The market is so different now than it was in two thousand four. So I get asked that a lot. It's like, ooh, I don't know if I could have been as successful if I had opened my first boiling crab today.、Um, I'd say start small, and obviously, you know, times have changed, but.、Um, It, I know there's a lot of great help out there with SBA. I have lots of friends who've done it. I've assisted other friends who've done it.、Um, have a good business plan. Obviously, is what you're going to need.、Uh, but if you can get help, that's always a good thing.、Um, just get everything in writing. But, but just, start、yeah. small. Yeah. Also, just be careful when you partners with like three or four different people, which、um, I know a lot of young younger generations back then.、Um, even past ten years, they've been trying to like.、Um, Uh, partner w- together, but be careful with that, you, you know. And then they end up losing a lot of money too, especially with the restaurant business.、Uh, there's only ten percent success and ninety percent failure, so that's a very high risk. You know. So, but if we analyze the numbers today, inflation, labor's gone up,、mm-hmm. price of produce, everything's gone up. So, are you saying that we are not able, as people starting out? To get into this food business anymore? Yeah, it's it's very tough. It's a、um, and the the inflation is really take a big toll on the business now. Yeah, so I think that's why robot is in, and <laughs> we're、yeah. looking into that. You know, and then everyone's getting robots, and then <laughs> cut down on as long as you know to cut down on the cost. Um, you know, cost control everything. So you you know, and then get good teams. You're good. I wouldn't discourage it, but I、yeah. I mean, my philosophy has always been be realistic about things. And、mm-hmm. um, if you're doing something, you've got to definitely have a passion for it because you are going to hit a lot of challenges. Obviously, you know, I love that you said you know business is a gamble because I totally believe in that. It's a total gamble. You're never really going to know where you end up, and you have to really be all in. Um, so you know. With that said, I think there's always a way if there's a will,、um, but just make sure your vision is clear. Make sure you've got good supporters. You've got the village,、um, but you've、mm-hmm. got to you've got to go all in. But it, certainly, it takes a lot more now than I felt like then. But then again, back in 2004, I thought that was a lot of money.、Yeah. I was like, what am I going to do? You know, if this goes belly up, we are not getting married. You know, it was one of those, and I would have been okay with that. You know, but、um, yeah. So I, you know, it's all. Perception, and when I think of what you're saying about starting small, I don't understand that, right? Because what do you do, like a 500 square feet, you know, restaurant? I mean, how how small can we go when we talk about small? Like 
at an event space, like at the six two six night market. What yeah. what do you yeah. what do you mean by that? Yeah, I exactly that. You know, and I've I've heard really great stories of business um, entrepreneurs who started during COVID, who did you know bento boxes or started selling certain things, and you know here in this community, maybe not so much in a lot of other states, but in California, there's a lot of really great home chefs and people that are doing things out of their homes um, because that's what they can afford to. And they start to see the business grow. And it's been great to hear stories of people who mm. started in, in their homes and now have a brick and mortar or moved to a food truck. Or, you know, I even heard of a great story of a birria taco lady who started out of her home and now has like a tent and is starting to do catering events and trying to get her for one of our um, next events as well. So I love stories like that, but kind of feeling it out, testing it to see if that's your cup of tea. Because I don't think people realize how difficult it is. I mean, they see the lines or they see, you know, um, social media. They see all all the likes, you know, that, that these new – it takes a really great content creator to create something, you know, really short um, – but it doesn't always deliver, you know, when you get there. So I think it's great to kind of feel out, you know, what you're trying to do. And that's what I mean by starting small. Yeah. Definitely. That's why I mentioned the first time is starting small. So like even space can be small, you know, but, you know, the cost control is everything. Like the rent, don't go overboard with expensive rents or, um, you know, uh, overexpanding, you know, like um, – uh, like decorations or anything like that. So you just have to control those costs first and make sure you have some capitals because it's scary. <laughs> yeah. I want to go into, uh, and this applies to other businesses as well, but how do you know when your stuff tastes good? How do you know when the product is good, right? Because we can be in the kitchen all day. We could be making widgets all day and other people next to us are doing the same thing. But why are they making it? Why Why did garlic and chives, why did boiling crab? Because there's a lot of people that do what you do. But how do we know when we have the good stuff? We're, we're here to help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you definitely like a unique concept. And, and um, the food, um, you have to believe in yourself. And uh, there's always tests and trial on all your products. Um, and then if it doesn't, uh, and then definitely go out and talk to your customer. Um, and I always get feedback from my customer. And I always get their feedback and then go back and reassess myself. So uh, improve on my products. So that's where I think that's the game changer, like with um, how you can be successful in that. So definitely talk to you. Don't get you know, shy about when they get negative feedback, you have to accept all the positive and the negative feedback and learn from that and, and improve from that. So I definitely the past 10 years, I have improved tremendously. That's funny that you asked that, because um, I still get surprised when people are like, Oh, we love your food. I'm like, Oh, you do. Um, <laughs> that's great. Because I know it's not for everyone. I I'm i I'm stubborn. I, I like what I like. And I, as long as I liked it and my husband cooked it, and I was like, I think you could make it like this or make it like that. Um, I just stuck to what I liked. And I hope that everyone else liked it. And fortunately, it worked out that way. Um, because I already, I only, you only know what you know. And I think that would be my advice for people. Like, do what you know. Don't, don't 
do what you want to know or what you think you know. Um, I knew how I liked my seafood boil. I knew how I liked to eat certain foods. Um, and that's exactly what we catered it to because it was it would be so difficult for me to try to cater to everybody in this room's you know palates because you know I like salt and salty spicy and my brother loves sweet and spicy and so it I just stuck to what I liked and tried to add things to the menu to accommodate other people for instance who wouldn't don't like shellfish and whatnot but. That's really what it started. I mean, when we were t- testing out recipes and doing things, we were like, do you like it? Do you like it? And, you know, we had, you know, our circle of friends who would come out and help taste test and Ooh, we like it like this or we like it like that. But I, th- I think you just kind of have to stick to your lane um, and know what it is that you like and have that clear vision. And if people like it, then great, because obviously you want that to happen. But I was satisfied with, you know, if we never exploded the way we did, I was happy to just have a place to go to myself to pick up a couple of pounds. Or I knew my friends would join me or I knew my family would join me. I knew they would come out, you know. Um, So fortunately, we're so blessed that people really took a liking to it. I think it was different. I mean, I think it was needed at the time to be different because there was nothing like it. And that's where we have the advantage because while there are a lot of copycats now and a lot of competitors now and it's so common to see crawfish on people's menus from buffets to Italian it's so weird to me to, you know I walk in I went to like a hot pot the other day and they had crawfish and I thought that's so strange to me you know but um but I guess it's not anymore so you know we were fortunate that we were kind of the first at the time um there wasn't really anybody like us that took it to the level that we did obviously we didn't create the the, the crab boil or the seafood boil we Never want to claim that. That's not at all what we're trying to do. But, um, but yeah, I, I seriously like was like, I like it, so I hope you like it too. That was kind of our philosophy. This is how we eat it. So maybe if you try it with salt and pepper or you try it with a ketchup mayo, like it was, you know, our way of introducing a new dish to, you know, the community, I think, um, and to people who'd never had it before. So. so a lot of people say location, 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 right? We can talk about that. But what I'm interested in is both of you have really cool brand names. How did they come? How did you guys come up with it? We get made fun of our name, actually, <laughs> because, because um, we don't always have crab because it's, yeah. it's like market seasonal, you know. <laughs> But uh, and you obviously, if you know how to eat crab, it's you don't really boil crab, you steam crab. So we kind of get made fun of. But it was like the, the idea was that to the boiling point of, you know, and things that are, you know, things that are boiled to the point of and how things are cooked. And honestly, I, I we couldn't name it the boiling crawfish because not everybody knew what crawfish was or crawdads or, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, crab was what my husband was doing. Crab was his strength. He had, you know, family members and friends who were in the crabbing industry who were shipping us crabs early on, you know, when we first opened, we knew that would attract people in and we try to get them with other things, you know. Um, So that's kind of how it happened with the boiling crab. We just wanted it simple, straight to the point. um, And hope that we could introduce it as, you know, an introduction to just boiled foods in general, you know, so. Yeah, so how I came up with garlic and chives is, uh, I love garlic. It's one of my favorite uh, ingredients, and I think it's the healthy ingredients. So uh, I love garlic and chives. Um, I love garlic. So I said, okay, so I don't know what will pair up with garlic. And so uh, one day I just came up with chives, which is 
in Vietnamese is somewhat is my dad's name. So I put that in honor of my dad's name. Mm. Um, and also it's like very, uh, chives are very delicate and garlic is very strong. So I want to make like a yin and the yang where it's strong, the one strong and one delicate. So it's kind of balances out. Um, so, and then also my kids, they were saying, oh, uh, that sounds like Italian, you know? And I said, well, chives, a lot, not a lot of Italian use chives, but the Chinese people use, or Asian people use chives. So I thought that's a cool name. So I, uh, the first year we opened and it was busy. So I make sure I trademark that name, but it doesn't stop Vietnam. So in, <laughs> back in Vietnam, uh, that few years later, they in uh, central Vietnam, they took they opened a restaurant called Garlic and Chives. But I don't know if the same dishes or not. But the, my customer told me, and I Google it, and true, you know. So I can't do anything because it's international. But definitely, you know, that the name is so too. important. Oh, it happened to you yeah, too. Vietnamese people are great. Yeah, <laughs> they're, they're so smart. They're same Saigon, the boiling crab. Yeah, <laughs> right. Oh, did they yeah. do that? Oh, yeah, two thousand seven. Oh, yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, they didn't last long. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, going back to location, uh, I remember Brodard opening up in the back of that ninety-nine cent, yeah. right? Right. And who's to say location at that point? Because it was yeah. like hidden. Yes. I mean, yep. the the courage to do something like that. How important is location? It is extremely important. So uh, buying a house, buying open a restaurant, location, location, location is extremely important. So um, uh, that's why I open, you know, I chose there because of 85 was in there. So I picked that one there. Uh, and the parking is great. Par- parking is extremely important. Uh, so... When we came into that plaza, I think that plaza became very busy. So we're very glad, you know. And the, you know, it's easy access to go in and out also. And it's in the heart of Little Saigon. I refuse to open on Bolsa Street because that's a crazy street. <laughs> so, so I think like the um, that Westminster and Brookhurst is like a great uh, location. So I think it's very important. And then my second location. Uh, I supposed to open, I got offer in Irvine, the, from the Irvine company, but um, the lease is outrageous, uh, very expensive, so I changed my mind. So I opened the second location in Artesia Cerritos area. So that's another food destination area. So um, it takes time to grow, and but, you know, we're five years there. And so our third location here, it's the... Uh, Euclid and Westminster is just a mile different, but I try to keep my menu as separate as from the first one, so that way uh, I don't have like um, you know like I have different audience for different locations. We got made fun of so badly from family members when we chose our location. Um, Do you all notice like they're very opposite? It's so opposite. <laughs> So yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Everything. Every time I've asked a question, I'm like, "There's two different responses here." Yeah, it's it was a hole in the wall, and everyone was like, "Why did you guys pick that location?" And I, to this day, I'm like, "That's all we could afford. That's all we we could afford." I mean, we looked at several areas, um, and that in combination with landlords trying to figure out what it is that you're trying to do, you know, um, and not understanding the business proposal. We just got really lucky. And so um, 
I think my philosophy for location is obviously, yeah, location is super important, but we have such faith in our brand. And I think, you know, we come from the generation of word of mouth. Um, that's why social media is still really, I'm in awe of social media right now, but we're so fortunate that we've, our business really has been, you know, um, through the support of word of mouth. I think that's what carries us. So, you know, where location is extremely important now, like 29 stores later, we obviously look at that, but we've never really cared to be on Maine and Maine. Obviously, rent is more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, we care about co-tenants now, and that makes a big difference. But I've always been a big believer of if they like it, they will come. So um, granted, you know, I would probably get pushed back if I was like, can I go behind this building and blah, blah, blah. But I, you know, I was of the generation of like the raves, you know, back in the days where you're like, you pick up the phone and you're like, where is it tonight? And they're like, you go here. (laughs) And then there's like hundreds of people there. So it's kind of like you pick up the phone, you're like, you try this place. And, you know, there's this like birria taco place or there's this, you know, you know, new hole in the wall. And it's kind of fun, I think, for foodies nowadays to kind of seek and and search and and work for their food and have it be a place that not everybody knows of but um you know with that said times have changed so uh, but for our first location it's quite funny because the plaza worked out for us um i there was like a club that was, I don't remember what. Ken. Oh my God, you remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, I used you know, to sing there, actually. You're a singer? <laughs> Maybe. Wow, Ken. Is there a commercial break where you can sing often? Um, this is I Can lo- Club, yes. Oh, I love that. So, yeah, the Can Club. And I remember like closing up shop and everybody, the line would stretch out in front of our doors and we'd be closed cleaning up and the staff would be like, what's going on? And it was a club. But people would be looking in and like, what's this place? And they'd come back the next day. Or I think it just it worked because Can kind of helped put us on the map because they were popular for after hours. But when you park there, you naturally you look around and you see what's around you. Um, and we'd be closing up shop. And, you know, it wasn't wasn't long after where we would have people eating there and then they'd be in line at can, you know, mm. so it kind of worked out. But I, I did get a lot of pushback from family members. I Fortunately, it wasn't because I wasn't from California. I didn't really know except Bolsa. I knew that Bolsa was like the place to be on. And I knew we couldn't get on Bolsa because we didn't have the money to get on Bolsa. But from other family members that were like, why did you guys go all the way out to Euclid, you know, in this plaza with a nightclub? You know, um, why would you go there with no foot traffic? I didn't have a choice, you know. But it also helped that because I wasn't too familiar with the area that I wasn't too picky. It was, you know... After looking around and having it work out, it just kind of worked out for us. But, um, but yeah, that's hole in the walls are nice. So in business, there's uh, this idea of scaling, of expanding. I'm not sure if that's in your vocabulary in the early days when you started out, but can you tell me the journey of what scaling, how it fits into your business model? And when did it? When did you start thinking about it? Uh, three restaurants, twenty-nine restaurants. When did you start thinking about scaling? And then after that, it's really about supply chain that I'd like to to get into. But let's you know talk about the scaling aspect of of each of your businesses. I 
I didn't dream to own my own business. It just kind of happened. Um, and so when we opened our first store, I really didn't know that we were going to open a second and a third. Um, and by like, I remember like the fourth or fifth, people were like, you know, are you selling? Is it still a mom and pop? Because we run it like it's a mom and pop. And, you know, there was talk about are they selling out? Are they growing too fast? Are they, which we weren't even growing fast. But it was, you know, are you, are they getting too big? And that's kind of, I think, fame in general, I think, or just popularity in general. What goes up kind of goes down. Um, Scaling for us has been interesting because we were going wherever the demand was. So as we expanded, it wasn't that we were like, oh, we got to keep going. It was people saying, come to Alhambra, come to San Jose, come to Dallas. I mean, that's really what drove us more than it was, where can we go next? And we weren't pinpointing things. Um, and with that said, we partnered with friends and family who were in those areas who, you know, uh, were interested. And luckily, we were able to make it work. And so that's kind of how we expanded. But with, you know, interestingly enough, we started to get a little bigger and bigger because we started at 1450 square feet, right? Um, to accommodate lines or reviews that were like, oh, it's just too long. I don't like to wait two hours or an hour and a half or Asians are really impatient. They want their food and they want it now. They don't like to wait. Um, and I get that. So we started going bigger, bigger footprint. Um, and now, I gosh, I want to say like six years later, or six years ago, we decided let's scale back. Because I feel like when you get too big, you kind of lose the feel, the energy's different. Um, it's kind of how I feel about concerts. I still love, you know, the little concerts and music festivals are great, but the energy's different. There's a lot, there's a lot that you can't control. There's a lot that's that's not in a controlled environment. Um, that's kind of how I feel. So as we continue to expand to this day, we've kind of found a nice sweet spot for our footprint and where it's larger than 1450, but not as quite as, you know, 7,000, 8,000 square feet. So I think managing that and, you know, I think everything in moderation. So that even goes for how large, you know, your a restaurant is or how fast or how slow you grow. So to each their own. But um, scaling has been quite interesting because you want to please people, but then business-wise and, you know, supply chain, everything, you know, um, staffing, it, it all changes. And so it's kind of been nice to go back to what we know in the comfort of this is this is what's right for us but it took you know a few years of trial and error to get to to get to that point so so i think opportunity is also um very important um i'm I'm a total opportunist Mm -hmm. um so whatever that comes to me I would grab onto the opportunity. So I think uh, the opportunity will definitely make get you to grow as well. Um, but you know, great opportunities. For instance, like I never thought would thought of open my third location. I think I should retire uh, soon. So, uh, but my my lease is up on my first location. So. I was signing the lease to open the third location to transfer to move the first restaurant over because I need a bigger location. But um, the opportunity is that the chefs have been there for 30 to over 20 years. So I kept on, uh, so I, I really liked the product as well. So I kept the chefs. Um, and so I have a great opportunity with my previous landlord on my first restaurant where he gave me a great deal to re-sign the lease. So I said, okay, so I'm doing 
uh, I'm keeping the third restaurant and the first restaurant as well. So, but it's a two different menu because it's, uh, I'm collaborating some of my dishes with the Chinese food on third location. So, um, yeah, so I think opportunity definitely. Um, and also, uh, while now we can afford a little bigger location, I think the location, uh, if um, for a small location versus the big location, uh, you still have to manage the same amount of work, okay? Whether you have a small location or a big location. So it just, uh, it's just the, your time. So I think, um, but to start out, always start out small and then grow big. But I think uh, when you get a little bigger, it's better to have a little bigger location. You can uh, increase your rev revenue and your staffing and everything. So there's a, a lot of opportunities to grow. I'm going to make a very controversial statement right now. I think food in Orange County, Vietnamese food, is the best in the world. Fight me on that. Mm -hmm. Yes. <laughs> Fight me. And I have a theory that uh, we grow really good produce here. We get really wonderful mm -hmm. climate temperate. Uh, we get stuff from Mexico. We, we just, we're in a perfect place. And then we have the biggest diaspora, the biggest Vietnamese diaspora in the world is here. So you think about 50 years of this culinary preparation, right? We, we're, we're living in a free place. Mm -hmm. We're growing as a community. We're getting better as, as chefs. We have perfect produce, so nobody can beat what we do here. That all being said, I can't imagine when COVID happened and the supply chains shut down or even crawfish. Can you both speak a little bit about the supply chain that you live in? You just have to be creative. So uh, in the food business, I think creativity is also very important in here. Um, so uh, you always have to uh, look into what other avenues, what other ways that you can um, change. So you cannot be like a cookie cutter and just do exactly like that. So uh, you just have to, whatever that comes with the opportunities that it comes, you need to grasp on it and make change. And I think that's important. So during COVID, for instance, um, like we had to close down. So I was being creative. So I did a lot of the bento boxes and that's how my two restaurants survived during COVID or three restaurants survived. So, um, but the supply chain definitely uh, make a big difference right now. It's kind of getting scary with the weather weather change. That's why it's so everything's so much more expensive, you know, and so, yeah. Yeah, I don't really know how we did it during COVID. Supply chain was already starting to become a challenge prior, and then it really, really kind of peaked during COVID. Um, obviously, our our food is quite different because it's seasonal, a lot of it's live. Um, and I don't think people realize from climate change to um, natural disasters that will affect, you know, the season from time to time. So um, and even with crabbing and fishing and all, all sorts of markets, you know, if you if you get you know, a hurricane that hits, it's like all of a sudden we don't have oysters. Um, I know COVID was difficult because, uh, especially for our international stores that were opening, the ports were like frozen, you know, but ev definitely everything went up because you had, you know, it was difficult for us because our food is like shared food. It wasn't like, oh, we could go through the drive-thru and you could like grab a burger, you know, or something like that because it's something that mm. needed to be shared. Yeah. And so we were fortunate that we 
could convert all our dine-in stores into takeout. Um, and the staff was great. Actually, by the end of COVID, they're like, can we keep it at takeout? You know, because it was so much easier to manage. Um, but it's, you know, the concept is shared food. Yeah. And so, like, you're you're missing the ambiance and people want to escape from homes and not always want to want to eat at home. But the supply was definitely a challenge from gas prices, too. You know, even, like, the things that we use as ingredients, like lime and, you know, lemons and garlic was everything just kind of froze, you know, internationally. Um, and things that we were getting shipped and um, from other other states even. So, um, so it, it was kind of a challenge, but we, we've been dealing with supply even post-COVID. You know, I think that's just how it is due to the saturation of the market and everybody doing seafood boils now and whatnot. So um, I think it just goes with the territory. I think you just kind of have to roll with it. And I have a closing question. What drives you? What is your why? <laughs> <laughs> you're more experienced than i am oh i don't think so i don't know about that i ask myself that all the time ken why do i do this why am i here you know um i think the why for me was at the end of the day i really do love our food even though i probably don't eat it as much as i used to um it really is. I mean, I've, I've had friends who've come and said, you know, I really don't like seafood I, or I'm allergic to shellfish, but I came with some friends and I had your wings or I had, you know, some sausages and it was really fun. I totally get it. I get why people talk about it. And that always makes me happy because at the end of the day, people just want to have a good time, enjoy some good food, share some laughs, really bond with each other. Um, there was Geez, about like 10 years ago, I really, I was at a point where I was like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Why are we growing? Um, and obviously, not only to help staff and see them grow. And if I grow, they grow. Um, and it was great for me to see them get promoted and become, you know, managers to GMs to regionals to, you know, um, taking over and helping us manage we've been really blessed with that but I think it was a, there was one time where I was really kind of like discouraged I'm like I don't think I want to do this anymore this the business has changed social media is really scary you know and, and, and fickle and even staffing has changed I think like the generation's different you know and and how we used to hire versus who we're hiring now but I remember being invited to like a staff's wedding and I think one of, like, the bridesmaids or the groomsmen got up and they started talking about, like, how they met each other. And it was through Boiling Crab. Wow. And so I've been able to – I've been so blessed to experience – I remember turning to my husband being like, that's why we do what we do. And seeing servers marry servers, servers marrying – loyal customers that were customers. Um, <laughs> yeah, it happens, you know, get yourself a good server. Um, or a good lawyer. Or, <laughs> um, and, you know, employees having babies and seeing them in each other's weddings. And I think at the end of the day, food not only brings people together in that way where we can enjoy something and really have a good time and forget hardships and forget, you know, drama, but really it, it went beyond. I think boiling crab for us has been such a huge cultural thing for the people that have been involved with me in my life, our family, our staff. It's really been great to see one small concept of sharing like a boiled seafood has grown into like this massive family where um, people met through 
standing in line or, you know, sharing a meal together at the Boiling Crab or having their first date there um, or we've had proposals at Boiling Crab. It's been crazy, oh. you know. <laughs> um, I Yeah. So I think for me, the why I remember going home that and being like, I think that's why we do what we do because of the relationships that have been formed, the people that we have met. Um at the end of the day, you know, whether however long we last, those relationships will outlast that and the memories will be great. But, I, you know, I think growing up, you always think about that favorite meal or that favorite place, you know, that you go to when you're young or your first date or whatever. So for us, that's kind of why we do it at this point. You know, it's 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 people, you know, so. Yeah. So with me, um, I, uh, having a uh, like customer relationships are so important to me. Um, we became like family. Um, and we still, I still have a customer from back 30 years from my parents' restaurant until the 10 years that I'm still with, uh, you know, garlic and chives that we just opened. Uh, and also creating jobs for a lot of people. Uh, when you pay them and then you start seeing tears in the eyes, um, creating jobs for um, my staff. That's important to me. Um, so you make like a big difference in someone else's life. Um, bringing good food, uh, creating jobs, and also giving back to the community. Uh, that's why I do a lot of philanthropy work as well. So uh, giving back to the community, definitely another uh, big thing that I want always wanted to be doing until I die. So uh, I'm stuck with garlic and chives and philanthropy work. Uh, before I turn it over to Q&A, uh, I just want to tell you um, how appreciative I'm sure everybody here is that you guys have opened up and, and shared so deeply uh, with the audience. Um, thank you so much for coming and being so open. And uh, with that, we can open up to uh, Q&A. Yeah. We all have different, um, you know, financial goals and, mm -hmm. you know, never enough, right? But at some point in your life where you're like, wow, I deserve to buy myself something. I just want to know, like, the first item of first <laughs> where you're like, you know what, I kind of like, I think I'm bored myself. And I just want to know what first item that you bought. <laughs> <laughs> just putting money back into the business all the time. So, um, well, I, I do reward myself. Uh, I love shoes and I love purses. So um, that's all I can wear in the kitchen because, uh, I mean, I do wear clothes, but but like chef's clothes. And so, but I can, you know, I like fancy stuff. So I, I do wear jewelry and shoes and nice purses in my kitchen. So I do walk out in my kitchen with like, uh, brand shoes. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I can't remember what I first. Do y'all remember what I thought? I I can't remember wh what I spent my money on because I shortly after I opened I I was I had a baby. Um, well, we opened. I got married. I had a baby. So like things happened really fast. Um, but I will say I think my husband surprised me with my first. Brand new car. It was a Range Rover in 2007. He surprised me. I think it was for Christmas or something like that. But I had never owned a brand new car. I mean, and it was, was I like 30, 35 or 33? I was like well over 30 because I had, growing up, I always had to share with my brothers or it was a used car or this and that. And I just remember being 
so in awe that it was brand new and it smelled brand new. Um, and so that's what sticks out for me. And people are always like, are you going to sell that thing? You know, and it's, it's, it, it's so sentimental that I, I can't sell it. But that to me, even though he purchased it for me and it was a surprise, was my money too. So that was probably, <laughs> I was like, thanks, but I guess think I should thank myself. Too. <laughs> like, but I guess that was like our biggest purchase, you know, that, you know, so. And the men in our community do to better support the women, women business owners? Well, that's a good question. That's a good question. There was a conversation that Kenneth and I had about how I felt just generational differences, um, just the dominance that the the men have, um, telling us what to do, but not telling us how to do it. Oh, yeah. Um, You know, just in what ways? Yeah. I think I've been fortunate because I'm, I'm the year of the tiger. And so like, yeah, I see I get that type of like reaction all the time. Like if you know, you know, so I'm pretty like tenacious and stubborn. But, um, but with that said, I think I've been really blessed because the men that I've been around have been really supportive. um, And they've understood that the biggest way to for, for men, I think, is to to listen. And to be receptive, I had, it's funny, I had an uncle who was really successful in the business. And I remember he would come around to my restaurant when we first opened it, but always tell us what to do. But I kept telling him, but this is different. Like, this isn't pho. And even though we're in the same city, you know, and you're just down the street, like, our clientele is slightly different. Our service was way better, and nobody could understand why we focused on service. Um, And it was just because I knew I didn't know better. That's all I knew was service. Um, And so I think that's kind of what made us stand out. But the men that I've been around, I've been really lucky because it – you know, um, you really, you really do need, I mean, it's, I'm all for like women's rights. I mean, I, that was my major in college, you know, um, was women's studies. And so I'm all for that, but it, you can't get by without the help of, of those around you. So I'm fortunate that my husband's like, you do you, you know, and I can, I'll support you on the back end. And, you know, as, as much as I love, we've got a lot of women department heads in our in our company. We've got really brilliant men, too. And they're really awesome because they're really supportive. And I think it's because they listen. I think ego is a big thing. And um, culturally, like women don't have big egos. Men do. But I think it's because culturally, they're expected to provide and be the smarter ones and, you know, uh, be the leaders. And it's, it's funny because I think they're better leaders when they've got, like, strong support, which is if they've got, like, a really great partner, you know, be it, you know, male or female. But a really great partner is, I think, what, what works. But f- I think for men to just hear us out, I think, or to hear us, give us a chance, you know, because we've got some really great ideas. Like, women are really inspiring me all over the world, you know, nowadays. Um, and I love anytime I hear a man, like – cheering them on, you know, because, you know, it, it's, you, you need, you need, you need the whole village. You can't just have a village full of women either, yeah. you know, but. Definitely. And so my experience with uh, my third location here, uh, I have a, I have a few Chinese chefs, you know, how Chinese, Chinese chefs, they're very um, egotistic and like very male dominant. And so uh, when I first walk into the kitchen, they will not t- let me touch anything. And But, you know, you just slowly have to guide yourself into, and, um, and you prove to them that you do know 
you do know more than anything. So if if you don't know what you're talking and you fight with them, then that's you know um, they will be hard headed. But now I can run the kitchen without you know like uh, they they listen to me, they're open to suggestions, and they talk to me just like you know one of the men, you know so. <laughs> So uh, I think it's very important to know what you're doing and not know what you're saying to them. Yeah. As far as um, you mentioned, you guys start with your own capital and things in that aspect and help expanding with other family members or friends that um, assisted you monetarily. Mm -hmm. Do you guys put together like a buy-sell agreement or something that just in case you guys want to not work with them anymore? So two-part question, that part and then... As you guys start to expand, as you get a little bit older, as your kids get older, have you guys thought about succession planning and what does that look like? Well, um, I just have my, luckily, I'm married to a good husband who makes good income. So he, you know, like we saved a lot. So we save it together. And um, so I didn't have that problem with like borrowing other people's money. Uh, but that's, you know, kind of scary because they, you know, uh, but you have to have like everything in writing uh, to me, like with uh, getting a lease or anything, everything has to be in writing, get the attorney to get involved. Uh, I think, I think like everything must be in writing. So it's very important. I think um, we had a couple stores that we had family and friends run and we created like a partnership legal binding contract and then we realized that we were we were an accidental franchise so we had to clean up and revamp everything and so those stores that we have that are owned by family and friends or close friends are actual franchises and so um, we're protected by those documents um, shortly after we did that we decided we would never do it again you know because each partnership really feels like a marriage and one marriage is hard enough. So um, <laughs> learned a lot um, through those family and friends. But we also learned that um, franchising, which is, you know, totally debatable, um, could be the death of a franchise I, I, or, or a brand, as I think mm -hmm. Howard Schultz or somebody said that. Um, but with that said, we franchise internationally. So um, anytime you're doing any partnerships with people, there's always got to be a legal binding contract, you know. Um, so I do believe in those partnerships. I just felt like as we were growing, it was easier for us to manage ourselves and to keep track of the brand, um, to maintain the quality and such. Um, and it worked for us because we were willing to grow slow and steady. I think franchising is a little bit, it's, it's a lot faster, you know. Um, and to answer your second question, I, I have four children, and not a single one of them has mentioned wanting to run the Boiling Crab, you know, and I'm okay with that. But I have encouraged them all, at least once in their lifetime, to uh, work in the service industry. I think that's important. Um, I've had, you know, nieces and nephews work for Boiling Crab, and I think that's great. Um, and we encourage that because it's really important for everybody to have a service position and to respect those in the industry. Um, so it doesn't have to be our store. But I think they're too young to, I think, think about it. But I'm also a big believer of follow your own dreams. My dreams aren't your dreams. Um, so, you know, we've thought about that. But with that said, I've got really great team members that I have 
no problems feeling that, you know, if something were to happen or something, you know, in the future that we've got a great team that knows our culture and understands why we do what we do and how we do things. So um, I think that's kind of the case. But for now, I don't have any plans to have any of my children take over. So (laughs) where do you see the just the restaurant business from your perspective for let's say in the next three, four, five years and social media I think is really important that influencer piece. Oh my gosh, I see it in my own nieces and you know it's like, oh you gotta go try this. I'm like, yeah, I I must, I must go try that because you're telling me I must go try it. (laughs) And then based on that, so kind of like the future of the industry, um, but based on as consumers, uh, you you are both foodies as well. And I heard you, especially Donna, talk about that mom and pop, you know, and the hole in the wall, those kind of places. And I think we all, when we travel, it's like, I wanna go to the, I wanna go to the real place, you know, the mom and pop, the one that's off the road, it's, you know, back here and you gotta go down here and turn left and then turn right and then maybe you'll see it. What's, what's some experience you've had recently with either something related to your own cuisine or just some food experience that you've had that you're like, you know, that was really tasty. And I'm going to text somebody that they must go try it. I I mean, I guess for me, just growing up in Kansas, my husband being from Texas, we're not really... um, we're not too bougie as it is. We're just all about good food. You know, like if it's got gravy, I am there, y'all. Like I am there. You know, if it's fried and there's gravy. Um, so I I think like in terms of how, where do I see ourselves in five to ten years, you're saying? Yeah, just, just, the, the rest, just the culinary industry in general. I'm like so excited to see where it's going, but it's scary also to see where it's going. Um, but I I love those hole in the walls, like you said, because I love the mom and pops because I know that they're putting their heart and soul into those recipes and executing those recipes. I mean, we were we were in Austin a couple of weeks ago and. We always look in the back. Is it an Asian person cooking? Is it a non-Asian person cooking? You know, it's kind of like, or you go, you know, same with, you know, whenever you're going to a taco stand, you're like, what's what's going on back there? Um, and so we're just big believers, believers and people who are really just honing their own craft. And I think for me, which is what's genuine and authentic will really come through. I think your customers know, your um, your family, your friends, everyone knows if it's like, if you're if this is just something that you whipped up or if it's something that you truly love or that person truly loved and put a lot of, you know, time and, and, and energy into. And I think you can taste that in food, you know. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see where the food's going nowadays because, you know, I hear content creations like quickest moving, you know, um, occupation now. I mean, it's like there's not a lot of, I mean, there's, you've still obviously you've got your, your, your degrees, um, but content creation is big, but it scares me because it's kind of all fluff sometimes, you know? So, I mean, how many times have you gone into a store and you're like, that was a really great video TikTok, but it was not really good food, you know? Um, but I don't know. I'm, I'm also excited because I know it's a generation of like fusion foods and, you know, um, everyone everyone loves to eat everyone's a foodie and so that's kind of how we came about we loved we loved food i i didn't claim to no business and neither did my husband but we knew what we liked to eat and we knew what, how we wanted it served and we knew what we thought tasted good and so i think that's kind of the foundation of all like really good you know uh restaurants is you, you got to like what you're making right yeah. you know it's something that you'd you'd want to order 
But um, but yeah, it's it'll be interesting to see where the world goes to, especially with robots, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, also uh, with the social media, that brings a lot of um, creators. Like um, people are more advanced in creating, uh, getting ideas, uh, innovative. So I think like for the food. Uh, for the food business in the future, it's very tough if you're not on top of your game. So you have to be on top of your game to get up there. Otherwise, you're just lagging behind. And then um, because everything now is so advanced. So um, I think it's just the, everybody become more foodie, more um, um, sociable. They hang out. Then food is the... Think that brings everybody yes. together. It's that glue that brings us together. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, like, if it tasted good, it didn't matter what it looked like or, you know, or the aesthetics of the place. I mean, mm -hmm. I granted, I appreciate a really fine restaurant that looks beautiful and the presentation's beautiful and it tastes great. Like, who doesn't appreciate that? But for the most part, if you're hungry, <laughs> you just want good food, you know? And so I think it's not... It, it helps to not be picky. So therefore, I, I, I'm, I'm a big, you know, advocate of, you know, the mom and pops and starting out and, yeah. you know. That's why my first, my parents' first restaurant, um, it's a hole in the wall. And I still kept it as a hole in the wall. So I, I tried to keep it as authentic and as original as possible. So we're not changing anything to modernize it. all of you for making this possible. Uh, I just know that your message resonates with all of us, but also we're going to push the message out because more people need to hear about the courage that you both have, um, the values, and obviously the hard work. Thank you for listening to The Vietnamese with Kenneth Nguyen. Special thanks to Brittany Tran, to Jane Nguyen, Catherine Nguyen, Tina Pham, Sydney Jamie, and Crystal Trin. Please find us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at The Vietnamese Podcast.